Good morning. I should say a good VBS morning. Uh, we are excited for VBS this week, and the decorations look uh, terrific. Hey, I'm excited to share with you this morning. Uh, it's about something that uh, I'm quite passionate about, and I suspect you are too. Uh, it is the gospel. It is the gospel. If you would turn in your Bibles to our key text for today, it's 1 Corinthians chapter 15. 1 Corinthians 15. And I, I came across this week a, a news story about a gathering of leaders from the communication departments of the North and South American divisions of the Seventh-day Adventists. And they were uh, meeting somewhere in South America uh, to discuss the idea of using AI, using artificial intelligence to communicate the gospel throughout the world, to sim simply uh, program it and uh, plus, press play. I know I've said a number of things in the past on the teachings of Seventh-day Adventists, both positive and negative. Uh, not much more I want to add to that this morning. But when I hear any story involving artificial intelligence, I get a bit concerned, don't you? Uh, I mean, yes, uh, AI has been handling our consumer phone calls for quite some time. We have plenty of those chat bots and virtual assistants, and they're being employed in everything from uh, driverless vehicles and healthcare questions to security decisions, even social media posts. But has anyone seen the Terminator movie series? Uh, I, Robot, even maybe like War Games. I'm an 80s child, and so I start to think of that when we start talking about AI. And by the way, I'm a techie. Some of you know I'm a techie. I use just about Google everything. But we might want to think through just how much responsibility we hand over to AI and certainly including the handling of the most precious message of all, the gospel message. Well, this morning, we want to consider the church's message, which is the gospel. And some quick review here, we are at the halfway point of our summer sermon series on the church. The church's master, quite obviously, is Christ. That was the first one. He is the Lord of the church. He is the church's master. And then we saw the church's makeup, which, to sum it up, is the body of Christ. The body of Christ, that is what makes up a church, a local and universal body of redeemed individuals. And then we had the church's mission, which is uh, founded upon the Great Commission and the Ministry of Reconciliation. And then we walked through the three Grace Life distinctives, which were uh, upreach, inreach, and outreach, if you recall. And then last Sunday... Pastor Dave shared on the biblical responsibility of stewardship, especially as it relates to the church's management. And so here we are, uh, midway point in this series, number five, the church's message, and it's the gospel. It's the gospel. And if you've been here for any length of time, you know that this is what we are all about here at Grace Life. We are stewards of the gospel message. It is the gospel which informs everything that we do as a church together. As pastors, as elders, we are on the lookout for every opportunity to draw our attention to the gospel. The gospel of Jesus Christ is the greatest of all treasures given to the church and individual Christians. And it is through the power of the Holy Spirit that God, that God calls upon us to guard this treasure that has been entrusted to us to read it, to revel in it, and perhaps even rediscover it for your life. 
And there are few better places for us to do that than the chapter we're going to examine this morning. Again, that's 1 Corinthians chapter 15, these first uh, 11 verses here. Uh, Some of the text may seem familiar to you, and and it should. Uh, This certainly can be a go-to Easter passage. Why? Because it strongly, boldly mentions the resurrection in there. But there's more than just the resurrection being mentioned in this section here, and we'll see that this morning. And it's also the longest chapter in this letter that Paul wrote to the Corinthians in 1 Corinthians here. So let's read together 1 Corinthians chapter 15. I'll read the first 11 verses here. Now I make known to you, brethren, the gospel which I preached to you, which also you received, in which also you stand, by which also you are saved, if you hold fast the word which I preached to you, unless you believed in vain. For I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins according to the Scriptures, and that he was buried, and that he was raised on the third day according to the Scriptures, and that he appeared to Cephas, that's Peter, then to the twelve. After that, he appeared to more than 500 brethren at one time, most of whom remain until now, but some have fallen asleep. They've died. Then he appeared to James. Then to all the apostles, and last of all, as to one untimely born, he appeared to me also. Verse 9, for I am the least of the apostles, and not fit to be called an apostle, because I persecuted the church of God. But by the grace of God, I am what I am. And his grace toward me did not prove vain, but I labored even more than all of them. Yet not I but the grace of God with me. Whether then it was I or they, so we preach, and so you believed. It might be tempting after, after having us read this passage to think something like, haven't we covered this already? I mean, haven't we discussed the gospel? And yes, it is true. I mean, we have examined and even established that our biblical mission is the church's mission. It involves the Great Commission, which includes the gospel and reconciliation. And, and under that banner of the Great Commission, we find Grace Life's three distinctives centered around this gospel in that we exalt him, we edify him, and we seek to evangelize the lost, all with the gospel. The church is gathered together around the gospel, and when we are scattered in our communities abroad, we are to be ambassadors of that same gospel. So yes, we we have covered, we've referenced uh, the gospel as it relates to the church's mission. However, before this letter of 1 Corinthians of Paul's draws to a close, I want to remind you what really matters. Paul says it this way. Look at verse 3. I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received. As of first importance. You know, the NASB gets this right. The ESV gets this right. The NIV gets this right. But I do struggle with the New King James and the King James's translation of this verse because it reads for them, for I delivered to you first of all, as if it was just in a, a reference of order. I gave it to you first. And, and that's the wrong emphasis here. I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received. Of first importance in that it should govern our intellect, our emotions, our will. Of first importance because it is what matters most. It's of first importance. And you think about this. 
It's meant to inform everything we believe. The gospel is to inform everything we do, everything we say. And when the gospel is at the center of our lives, it gives greater meaning to our lives, a greater purpose in our lives, hope for our lives. So what a gracious reminder this text can be to each of us, 1 Corinthians 15. Well, let's look at it this morning as we want to pull out of it some core truths concerning the gospel. Seven features I'm going to walk through this morning originally serve as a call back to the gospel. This is the church's message. And Paul is writing, as we've stated already, to the church at Corinth. And time and time, time, and time again in this letter, Paul has been viewing and addressing issues in the church of Corinth through the prism of the gospel. I mean, there were moral issues that the Corinthians were dealing with. There were some misguided beliefs concerning singleness and marriage. Uh, Christians were suing Christians. Some Corinthian Christians were eating food offered to idols in a way that did not build up their neighbors. Others were abusing the Lord's Supper. And as we can see here, even in verse 12, some false teaching was taking place. A denial that God would resurrect believers that had already died. And so how does Paul address each and every problem in that church? With the gospel. With the gospel. Verse 1. Now I make known to you, brethren, the ESV says, now I would remind you, the gospel which I preached to you, which also you received, in which you stand, by which also you are saved, if you hold fast the word which I preached to you, unless you believed in vain. So over and over, over and over and over, Paul exposes their errors, he exposes their sins, he holds them up, as it were, to the to the light of the gospel, to bring clarity, to bring correction to them, as well as to encourage them. You know, in, in some sense, that is sort of our job description as your pastors, to bring the gospel to bear first on our lives and then this church, which should be the priority really of every Christian here at Grace Life. You may be struggling in some way with anxiety. You may have a serious illness in the home, some sort of relational conflict that is taking place. There's a struggle there in some way. And the gospel is calming, the perspective giving, stability imparting foundation for your fears. There is nothing like it. It's, it's essential. It's at the heart of our identity in Jesus Christ. And that's number one here. This is the most obvious core truth. Number one in your bulletin, the centrality of the gospel. It's central to our lives, the centrality of the gospel. Again, there's nothing more important to each of us. Jesus Christ and what he's done for us is to be the most important thing of first importance. And Paul says that nowhere else. Scripture saves this ranking for the gospel alone. There, there are many things of some importance. There are some things of great importance, but there is only one thing of first importance, and that is the gospel. And Paul doesn't just make the statement here and walk away. He reminds them of its centrality 
in their lives. Look again, end of verse 1. They are standing in it. I mean, literally, it is the state of their being because verse 2, it, the gospel, saved them. They were transformed by it. You know, these, these Greeks, they knew nothing of the scripture of Israel. Nothing of God's movement through uh, redemptive history. They were just unbelievers. But now, they're believers. They're overcomers. They're Christians. And Paul's reminding them here of the centrality of the gospel in their lives as they are to hold fast to the word. Hold fast to it. Why? Do you remember what was life like before the gospel for you? They owe their very existence to it, as does every Christian here today. What was it like for you before you received, believed, now stand and hold fast to it? In Paul's words, I mean, your sin paid for, God's wrath exhausted upon Christ with none left for you. Do you remember I mean, for some of you, I know that would be tough because your testimony involves maybe coming to faith in Christ at a very, very young age. But for a number of you, I know, myself included, that is not the case. And there is a stark contrast. And we do remember. And so we're to hold fast to the word because we must recognize that the world and even many churches today, they're full of error. They're full of gospel errors, even, even gimmicks, which can lead to number two here. I'm going to give you some C's, seven C's, confusion about the gospel. It can lead to some confusion about the gospel. You see, tragically, multitudes of people believe that they are, in fact, Christians, and yet they fail to grasp what the gospel fully is. Let me give you a few quick examples of some of the confusion. It's outside these walls about the gospel. Beliefs that are patently false. An example that uh, contributes to the confusing here would be that the gospel is not simply that God is love. You've heard that statement. You've heard it probably in the world. God is love. It certainly is true. 1 John 4, 8 says that God is love love. But Isaiah 6 also says that God is holy, holy, holy. Uh, The world has sanitized this phrase over time to insinuate that a a loving God uh, could never be a judging one. It's a distortion of divine love. It's applying this kind of philosophy of this love is love kind of uh, definition to the love of God, and it weakens his worth. It actually undermines, in some sense, his, his goodness. He is holy. The culture cannot change the timeless meaning of what God has said concerning sin and salvation. He is holy. He is, he is set apart, and that means every attribute. So that means his mercy is set apart. His justice is set apart. His grace is set apart. We can go on and on. His, his patience is set apart. And certainly, we know that his love is unlike every other, every attribute. And so, I would argue that the gospel is a holy love. It's a holy love. It's not a do whatever makes you happy. It's not a do anything 
that provides pleasure to you. It's not a follow your heart, your impulses, and your urges. The gospel is set apart. It is a holy love. God is love, yes, but he is also holy, holy, holy. Another example that contributes to this confusion, this might step on a few toes, but the gospel is not simply saying a prayer. It's not simply saying a prayer. The sinner's prayer is not a switch that activates salvation. You know the sinner's prayer, right? Uh, Lord Jesus, I'm a a sinner. I, I believe that you died for my sins so I could be forgiven. I receive you as as my Lord and Savior, thank you for coming into my life. Amen. That is basically the sinner's prayer. And first, let me be sensitive here. And let me say that to pray this can be a very good thing. Please don't misunderstand me. It can be one of the very best prayers. For Jesus said that out of the mouth speaks that which fills the heart. Saying the sinner's prayer can simply be a way of declaring to God that you are relying on Christ as your Savior. If we confess with our mouth Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you shall be saved. And that prayer can be a wonderful declaration of your salvation. But let's also be clear. There are no magical words that result in salvation. Saying a prayer in a certain way with certain words, just say these words. That's not biblical. It's only faith in the gospel that saves us. And so there are churches that are confusing the gospel message when they pronounce assurance of salvation over a person who continues in a carnal lifestyle just because they merely said a few certain words in a prayer. In fact, that false sense of security can often insulate those individuals from ever really hearing the true gospel. So the gospel is not simply that God is love as the world would define it, or saying a prayer in effect a a magical spell. And here's one more example. Sadly, we could do this all day. The gospel is not simply walking an aisle. It's not simply walking an aisle. Uh, Many know this as the uh, altar call or a public invitation where uh, often the congregation stands and and sings uh, a song such as uh, Just As I Am or Come Just As You Are, And people are encouraged, they're invited to walk the aisle to declare that they have publicly decided to follow Jesus. Now, there are many reasons that this can be confusing as it relates to the gospel, which is why we don't practice it here at Grace Life. It can outwardly convey the notion that salvation is simply walking an aisle instead of being a work of the Holy Spirit. It can create false conversions. It can uh, manipulate some to believe they fully embrace the gospel when they've just simply walked the aisle. They've simply had a little courage to, to come forward. Now, does this mean that everyone who has ever walked an aisle is not saved? No, no, I'm not saying that. That is not what I've said, only that it adds to the gospel confusion. Do you see that? And by the way, a distorted church is usually a result of a distorted gospel, of confusion about the gospel. Scripture makes no mention of walking an aisle or of praying a specific prayer or even signing a card. These tactics often have been added to the gospel to kind of bait the hook. But the gospel call is simple. 
It's simple. Repent and believe. Repent and believe. If the church is to faithfully and accurately proclaim the gospel, our message, the message of salvation, must not be a confusing one. We are to keep it biblical, which will keep it from becoming confusing. So we need to be careful, extremely careful when there is some kind of ploy involved for someone to uh, elicit an emotional response. You know, just say these words with me. Hey, Jesus is at the door. He is knocking at the door. You just need to open that door. You need to let him come in. Accept him. Now, Jesus doesn't need sinful man's acceptance. We need his. I mean, if we want to get the gospel right. Which leads us to the third core truth concerning the gospel. Number three here, the content of the gospel. Content of the gospel. I mean, what is the gospel? What really is the gospel? If you could summarize it, if you could boil it down to just the essentials, what would the content of the gospel be? Well, notice a few things here. End of verse three, the first of four that's. You see four that's? This is the content. That Christ died for our sins. That he was buried. That he was raised. That he appeared. That is what the gospel is. The gospel is the good news of what he did to save us. The divine accomplishment that took place. This is the church's message. It's the gospel. The salvation accomplished for a fallen people through the life, through the death, through the resurrection and ascension of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. And note here in our text that Paul doesn't just say Jesus. He's not just a man, although he was truly a man, but he is also the Messiah. He is the anointed one of God who died for our sin, the Christ, our sins. Our transgressions, our iniquities in the language of Isaiah 53, which is also why, by the way, that we see the words according to the scriptures two times, according to the scriptures. I mean, the Old Testament foretold of Christ's coming in humility, his, his rejection, his betrayal for 30 pieces of silver and his ultimate crucifixion for the sins of his people in accordance with the father's good pleasure, the eternal son who is equal with the father and he's the exact representation of his nature, willingly left the glory of heaven. He left and was conceived in the womb of a virgin and was born the God man, which we all know is Jesus of Nazareth. And as a man, he walked this earth for a period of time in perfect obedience to the, the law of God. But in the fullness of time, in the fullness of time, men rejected him. They crucified him. They, they uh, pursued him to the point of death. And he died in man's place. Instead of us being condemned for our sin, the perfect lamb of God paid the price. This was the love of the Father, the Father's will. On the cross, he bore man's sin. He 
suffered God's wrath and died in the place of all who will believe. He was dead. And so verse 4 says he was buried. Do you see that? That's interesting to note. He was buried. Christ's cold body was lying on a chilled stone. His human heart, it had stopped. The organs shut down. His body that remained, his blood that remained in his body was congealed in his veins. His, his eyes were, were motionless. They were dilated. He was dead. And so he was buried. His body bound tight, sprinkled with spices in a grave of death. And the Old Testament scriptures predicted all of this. All of this according to the scriptures. God himself purposed and even planned the cross. And there was no denying this fact, nor was there any way to deny the next one, verse 4 again, and that he was raised on the third day. Now that's our Easter message, right? But it's not just Easter, it's the message of the church. It's the gospel. On the third day, God raised him from the dead, resurrected him by the Spirit, the same Spirit that is within every believer here. That same spirit. And this resurrection is the divine declaration that the father has accepted his son's death as a sacrifice for sin. Jesus paid the the penalty for man's disobedience. He satisfied the demands of justice and appeased the wrath of God. That's what that word propitiation we see in scripture a couple times in the New Testament means satisfied the demands of justice, appeased the wrath of God. And for 40 days, it says here, Jesus appeared. He appeared to many witnesses. You see it four times. He appeared, he appeared, he appeared, he appeared. It's emphatic. Eyewitness testimony, which in the ancient world was the gold standard for historical proof, veracity. So, what does this all mean for us? It means that the gospel never changes. The gospel never changes. That's number four, the unchanging nature of the gospel. The gospel's always reliable. It's always true. And it doesn't depend on us. Isn't that good? It doesn't depend on us. Throughout all of human history, the message is still the same. Repent and believe. Repent and believe. There's nothing to add to the gospel. There's nothing to subtract from it. God remains long-suffering. And you, you need to be thankful that Paul mentions nothing in this text about the Corinthians. Nothing about me. Nothing about Flip and how I feel or, or my lack of obedience. None of that is the gospel. The gospel is divine saving events. It's concrete, historical objective, predicted, observed, accomplished acts by Christ that secure salvation forever for those who trust him. When he died on the cross, he said those words, it is finished. That's the unchanging gospel. Because an objective gospel is an unchanging gospel. Do you want to hear more on this? This matters because, frankly, your feelings don't. Your salvation does not depend upon how you feel. If I went based 
on my feelings for my salvation, I would be saved one moment and unsaved the next. But instead, we have wonderful writings in, in the Bible, wonderful scripture given to us. First John, vital signs of how you know you're a believer. And we see in First John, we see words like, by this we know. By this we know. Not because you feel it, by this we know. Your salvation doesn't depend on how you feel. Instead, it relies on the power of God. Matt read for us Romans 1, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes. Your standing before God never changes because of your recent performance. Your hope for the future never changes based upon your circumstances. The gospel doesn't stop being the gospel. God's gospel is unchanging because it's unfailing. It's, it's uh, unwavering. My sin in the past, forgiven. My current struggles, covered. My future failures, paid in full. All by the marvelous, infinite, matchless grace of God found in the atoning work of the cross of Christ. And that really is number five, the conversion, conversion power of the gospel. The conversion power of the gospel. I love how Paul gets a bit biographical here with us next. There's a, a transformation that has taken place in his own life. I mean, he, he tells us basically the effects of the gospel. Verse 8, we, we know the story of Saul's conversion to Paul, right? Verse 8, and last of all, as to one untimely born, he appeared to me also. For I am the least of the apostles and not fit or unworthy to be called an apostle because I persecuted the church of God. So who's Paul? Note the adjectives. You see him there? Last, least, unworthy. Last, least, unworthy. And here comes the difference that the gospel makes. The conversion power, verse 10. But by the grace of God, I am what I am. And his grace toward me did not prove vain, but I labored even more than all of them. Yet not I, but the grace of God with me. You see what happened in verse 10? The two I am's that have replaced the, the last, least, and unworthy references. But by the grace of God, I am what I am. What makes a difference between Saul and Paul? Between Saul and Paul? Is it his effort? His sincerity? Or is it grace? I mean, is it effort? He talks about his labors here. And do you think Saul worked hard for what he thought was originally God's will for him? I mean, he belonged to the Pharisees. The most zealous group concerned for the law of God. But those efforts made no difference, no conversion there. How about sincerity? Would you say, if you had bumped into Saul, would you say that Saul was the real deal? That whatever Saul was, that man, he's got conviction. He's sincere about what he believes. What you see is what you got from him. I think you would say that. But that's not what we read in verse 10 three times, is it? Verse 10, 
Grace is stated literally covering and converting Saul from being the last, least, and unworthy. It is grace, grace, grace. Apart from Christ, apart from God's gospel grace, Saul stays Saul. But it is the grace of the gospel that humbles Paul. The gospel humbles Paul by reminding him of his past. It encourages him by reminding him of the grace of God. It motivates him to more diligent service for the glory of God. It it empowers him to bear more fruit for his glory, for God's glory. And this is the conversion power of the gospel, all because of grace, all because of grace. And the same applies to you, to you. The the gospel will, will humble you by reminding you of what you were in the past. It will encourage you, reminding you that you've received it by grace, not by effort, not by any kind of sincerity, but by grace. And then it'll motivate you to more diligent service, to bear fruit. Whatever renders you last, whatever renders you least, and, and again, Paul's words, unworthy before a holy and perfect, all-seeing, all-searching, knowing God from whom you cannot hide or pretend you have no sin, <laughs> there's the grace of the gospel. There's his grace. It is all of grace. And so God gets all the glory. That's number six, credit for the gospel. Credit for the gospel. Look again at Paul's words in verse 10. But by the grace of God, I am what I am. And his grace toward me did not prove vain, but I labored even more than all of them. Yet not I, but the grace of God with me. I love this little statement found near the end here. These three tiny words in the original, a favorite phrase from Paul. Yet not I. Yet not I. So the apostle Paul had labored more than the rest, but who receives the credit? Yet not I. He understood Old Testament scripture and God's redemptive plans, even ecclesiology, the church's plans, as he wrote a number of epistles to the churches. Yet not I. Paul planted churches. He was humanly responsible for sharing the church's message, the gospel, with so many unreached people groups. Yet not I. Guess who wrote? at least 13 books, maybe 14 if we include Hebrews, of the Bible, and went to the third heaven. Yet not I. Gospel grace doesn't hinder our efforts. Just the opposite. It makes them possible. Look, there is coming a day for believers when there will be no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. And we will stand before the Lord and we will receive a crown. And scripture tells us that we will take that crown and we will place it at his feet because we have been told that only in his strength could those things ever be accomplished. Apart from him, we can do nothing. Yet not I, end of verse 10, but the grace of God 
with me. This is not some kind of um, exercise in false humility. It's the result of the gospel going forth. Verse 11, we preach and so you believed. Nothing has changed from the time when Paul was sharing and preaching the gospel here. There's the call of the gospel to respond. That's number seven. The call of the gospel to respond. What is competing for your attention today? What stands in the way of your peace? What stands in the way of your joy, of your hope right now? You know, we all have things in our lives competing for the place of first importance in our souls. I mean, if we're honest, we do. We hear God's gracious words this morning, but who are you outside of the grace of the gospel? Do you know what I mean? I mean, like, tally up for a moment here. Just mentally tally up your disqualifications. Tally up your demerits, your sins. You know them. You're a good student of your weaknesses. Count your idols. We all have them. These things that we have put before God, that you have put before God, that you love so much that you're willing to sin for them. How carefully you you manage your image here on Sunday morning or regularly on social media. Again, we are all guilty of this. This is sadly how we function in our society today. How hard we, we uh, try to control our lives. Just try to control them. And then you move on to your failures. My failures. Reckless decisions that we've made. Self-exalting motives. Perhaps bitterness that we've nursed towards others. And over all of that. And that's a lot. Over all of that is the grace of the gospel. The grace of the gospel covers all of that. Look, if if you're here and you're not a follower of Christ, well, you are just in the same exact position, in the same place that every one of us once was at some point. The same spot a sinner in rebellion against the God who made you and loved you. But you're guilty. You are guilty, though, and and culpable. And apart from grace, there is a day that's going to come quicker than a shark attack, let me tell you, that one day you will stand before God and you will receive justice for your sins because God is a holy judge. A holy judge. But all of that sin, that, that worst arrogance aimed at him can have that word grace painted over it, right? Grace. By responding to that message that we've just read, what Christ has done, acknowledging your sins, trusting that death, the death that we just read about as the only payment for your sins, repenting, turning from that sin, 
believing in faith, purposing to, to love and follow and trust in him and his promises, God has acted to redeem you. It's the gospel of grace. Again, in faith, you must receive it. This is the church's message. It's the church's message, the gospel. And the call is to simply respond and receive it. Please do. Please do. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we, we thank you for the wisdom of your word that uh, here in this passage this morning presents to us through your Apostle Paul some powerful truths concerning the gospel. Not just its, its content, but its unchanging nature and the power that it has to convert the heart of stone into a heart of flesh. May the gospel always remain a matter of first importance here at Grace Life and in each of our lives. May we live in, in such a way that demonstrates the grace you have bestowed upon us, upon believers, receivers of your gospel, truth and love, bearing the fruit of the gospel. And Father, if there's anyone here that has yet to come to faith in Christ, our prayer is that they would surrender their heart, their soul, their life to you, that you would draw them near in this day as the time draws near for your return. Open their eyes to the, to the grace of the gospel. Produce repentance and, and faith out of their hearts. And we pray this for the Father's glory. Not yet I, but in Christ's name we pray. Amen.